everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 108 of Pop Culture Lady Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, on your, I think you did a little too much LDS podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Bose. This week, we are joined by Sue from the Women at Warp podcast, who also recently celebrated their 100th episode. They watched and discussed one of our favorites, Galaxy Quest. Sue, welcome to Pop Culture Deprived. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be talking about this movie with you. Congratulations on 100 episodes. Mm. Thank you so much. It took a lot longer than a lot of other shows because we only release every two weeks. So it's also about like four or five years in. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah, we're really excited. And there's still so much on the our, our list that we want to get to. So we'll be around for a while, I think. Yeah, we feel your pain on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's great listening. You you keep saying, oh, yes, we must do a thing on her. Oh, we must talk about that character. We must. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so um, we had Andy on uh, at First Time Trek, so we kind of knew her history with Star Trek because, mm-hmm. you know, she tweets about it quite a lot. Um, what's your history with Star Trek and what are, you, what are your feelings about Star Trek 4? Well, I was born at the same time as my Star Trek. No, <laughs> that is a reference to a Short Treks episode that just released. Um no, I uh was very young when Next Gen premiered, like four or five. Okay. And literally grew up with the next generation. I really I don't remember a time in my life where I was not someone who watched Star Trek. And I just I absolutely loved it. I've stuck with it. I sort of fell off the bandwagon in college. Because my college did not allow television. Mm. Oh, no. So, yeah. Yeah. You couldn't get it unless you, like, moved off campus and had your own cable hookup. Wow. So I did not see uh, – it mostly affected Enterprise. I did not see Enterprise when it first aired. Oh, no. Sorry. I know. Not <laughs> I, I realize later, not the biggest loss, yeah. right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's always been a part of my viewing. It's always been, like, my favorite TV show. Uh, and – I am kind of amazed that, like, I feel like a bit of a Star Trek tastemaker in some ways now. So, you know, stick with your passions and <laughs> it'll take you to podcasting, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Star Trek Four. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, was this a family thing for Star Trek in general? Was it that your family watched it as well? And that's what got you in? My older brother certainly did. Okay. Um, I think my my parents viewed it more as harmless okay like it was you know it was tv that they could trust us to watch and they knew it wouldn't be bad right you know um for a little perspective on that my dad was a minister oh so we had (laughs) you know i couldn't watch like bewitched and i dream of genie on make at night because (laughs) witchcraft but like star trek was safe for them (laughs) so they didn't really pay attention to it and were they watching the films? I, I assume you've not seen this at the cinema. This was a once you got into the series, you revisited the films. Yeah, I'm sure I watched it on TV. I'm I know we had the VHS tapes, so I know I watched it at home several times. Um, when the DVDs came out, we I definitely bought those. I don't know where they are, okay. but you know I've seen this in in several different formats Mm. in several different locations it's possible i went to a re-release in a theater at some point but i don't think so for this one Mm. yeah it's not the one that tends to be shown on the big screen yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's actually 
actually surprising to me because this is hands down the one that everybody tells me is the best Star Trek movie. That's really interesting because I feel like in a lot of Star Trek circles, when you say that four is your favorite, you get kind of like a side eye. (laughs) Okay. Because a, a lot of like hardcore Trek people are like, Wrath of Khan is the best one. Okay. It's just, yeah, since we started doing these, you know, when I've been telling people what I've been watching and where we started and, and that sort of thing, people are just like, oh, one's so bad, three's so bad, but four, when you get to four, <laughs> it's going to be really, really good. I mean, of course, everybody likes Wrath of Khan. I think that's why we actually yeah. did that one first. We did them mm. out of order. Um, but this one is the one I've definitely heard the most about from people who I've talked to about Star Trek. I think it has the most general audience appeal, for sure. Right. I think it's the the one that you can most easily follow if you don't have a history with these characters. Okay, yeah. No, that's true. Absolutely. But like for for a lot of Trek people, I, I get side-eye when I say this is my favorite one. So <laughs> I, I will admit that I, I recognize that other people consider Wrath of Khan to be the best one, but this is my favorite one. And those can be different things. So. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the one I can't fault. There is nothing in here that I go, oh, yeah, I can take points off for that, or that's not as good as it could be, or there's a problem here. It's just, it works on it. Anyway, we're going to get into that in a bit. Um, <laughs> Mandy, you had quite high expectations for it then, I assume, going in. I did. Um, actually, to the point where I was almost worried about it. Um, okay. Because I've loved all of the ones that people have said are really bad. Like, I loved one. <laughs> I loved three. And people are just like, I don't understand how you like those movies. And because everybody loves this one, like, I expected it to be good. But at the same time, I worried that because I like the ones other people don't, am I going to hate the one everybody else likes? Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know where I was going to end up on this one. Okay. Interesting. Right. Well, we'll find out in a bit. Uh, for history, if anyone isn't aware, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home is a 1986 science fiction film. It was directed by Leonard Nimoy and stars the regular crew, along also including Catherine Hicks as Dr. Gillian Taylor and Brock Peters as Fleet Admiral Cartwright. A change away from the grand galactic stories of the previous three films, Nimoy's vision was no dying, no fighting, no shooting, no photon torpedoes, no phaser blasts, no stereotypical bad guy. I wanted people to have a really great time watching this film, and if somewhere in the mix we lobbed a couple of big ideas at them, well, then that would be even better. (laughs) Shatner and Nimoy both received very large salaries for this film. The fear over this increasing cost added to the desire to create a new series with cheaper actors, another generation, if you will. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Early in development, Eddie Murphy, a fan of the series, was slated to be cast. His popularity could have added to the film's viewers. His character was eventually combined with a marine biologist into Dr. Taylor because Murphy himself wanted to be an alien or a Starfleet officer. The film was a critical and commercial success. It made $133 million against a $24 million budget, which makes it the most profitable of the prime timeline movies. Uh, I think it only made a little bit less than Star Trek 1, but that had a much bigger budget. Mm, yeah. Critics noted the enjoyable humor and strong performances from the cast that were not having to compete with huge special effects for once. I think it's curious that they ended up not letting Eddie Murphy be a part of the film because, I mean, they could have found 
a role for him as either an alien or a Starfleet officer with as many of those we had in this movie. There's a lot of detail on the writing of the script. The uh, two guys who wrote it. So there's a story by, I I want to say half Bennett and Leonard Nimoy, and they Mm -hmm. had the story. It went to these two guys to write it, who were going to write it for Eddie Murphy. And I think they might even have done Beverly Hills Cop or something like that. Mm. It wasn't an, I want to be in it. I want to have a cameo. It was, I want to be the guest star of this movie, which, which certainly would have uh, changed the script a lot more than just slotting him into a background scene. Right. If he would only do it as an alien or a Starfleet officer. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then I think that script, Paramount then look at it and turn around and go, actually, no, this is not very good. So they then get other people in to write what we now know, but I think they all end up credited because a large chunks of it were already there. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's a little convoluted. So, as is the movie itself. Yeah, what's this film about? <laughs> All right. So, to save Earth from an alien probe, Admiral James T. Kirk and his fugitive crew go back in time to San Francisco in 1986 to retrieve the only beings who can communicate with it humpback whales. That's even more than the trailer gives you. <laughs> I took that directly from IMDb. Like, the trailer gives you a lot of what goes on, except mm-hmm. the trailer does not mention whales. <laughs> that is probably a good call. Yeah. Um, how were you able to watch this? Sue, do you own this? I swear to you that I own this. <laughs> I have no idea where it is. <laughs> so I wound up renting it on Amazon Prime. Nice. So, so you know, Star Trek 4 is your favorite. You don't know where your DVDs are. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. Casual. Ugh. <laughs> well, <laughs> well un- until recently, it was on Netflix for us. Mm. So maybe it has to be within the last year, because I'm sure I've watched it within the last year, that it, it removed itself from Netflix. Right. So Yeah, I'm surprised it's not on Netflix, because all of the TV shows are still on Netflix. Yeah, well... <laughs> There's this thing with Paramount and CBS mm. where they have been separate companies and then one company and then separate companies and then one company. And in the most recent divide, uh, someone decided that anything on TV would go with CBS and anything that was a film would go with Paramount. Mm. So they're owned by different studios. Got it. Which is ridiculous. But <laughs> – that's where we find ourselves with the Star Trek movies. Okay. Yeah, at the the recent Destination Star Trek, there was like one poster of Chris Pine, and that was basically the only reference to the Kelvin stuff. There was just nothing about the movies at all. It was all CBS series-focused stuff. Mm-hmm. Really oh, interesting. That'll be interesting once the new show starts, because if I'm not mistaken, the new show with Picard is going to follow the Kelvin timeline, isn't it? No. No. No? Was that no. just speculation that I was reading? No. So. <laughs> go, go on. We're going way off here. That's okay. But the, <laughs> the destruction of Romulus that's, that prompts events in the Kelvin timeline mm-hmm. happens in the prime timeline. Okay. So Romulus is destroyed. These miners go back in time. That event where they arrive is what causes the breakoff of the Kelvin timeline. Oh, okay. They arrive and destroy the Kelvin heads. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
Mm. See, this is why we need super fans on the show to educate <laughs> me on these things. Yeah, a few days ago, there was a lot of kerfuffle over what this actually meant. <laughs> There was people with notepads of loop drawings. This is what it means. <laughs> These are Star Trek fans. You'd think they'd understand TV time travel. Yeah. They clearly need to study Back to the Future a little bit more. Mm. <laughs> um, in the UK, it's on Sky Cinema. Um, there are a lot of the movies available for free on Amazon Prime, but not this one. Yeah. I, 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 it's I, not. The one right I, in the middle. Yeah. I think one was, I think... Like five and six were, and all the next generation ones, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay, Mandy, I think we've talked about the cast in the past and we, what we've seen them in. Uh, I said that this introduced two new actors, Catherine Hicks and Brock Peters. Are you aware of them from anywhere? Uh, just like in the last one, I am aware of Catherine Hicks because of Seventh Heaven, which is where, uh, oh gosh, cannot remember his name right now. Was it David? Uh, no, my, not my, David. It was the um Sue, you know who I'm talking about. Reverend Camden. Yeah. <laughs> he was in um one of them. It was one, two, or three. I don't remember which one. Probably one. He was the guy who was very like arrogant, the foil for Kirk. Oh, Decker. Stephen Collins. Yeah. Stephen Collins, yes, him. He was on Seventh Heaven, and so now this one also has uh Seventh Heaven actress Catherine Hicks. I don't know what else she's been in. She's just Reverend Cameron's wife to me. Okay. Which is probably really terrible, but yeah. Um, Brock Peters, his face was super familiar, but I don't know why. I looked him up and I have no idea why. I, I so this is one of the films that I watched last year that I uh, had not seen before. He is the person on trial in To Kill a Mockingbird. I've never seen oh. To Kill a Mockingbird. Ah, okay. Oh, you didn't study at school or anything? No, I got okay. out of that one somehow, so I have not read it, nor have I seen it. <laughs> ah. Yeah, that's his sort of landmark role, and then he, he does become a bit of a uh, Star Trek alum. He is also Ben Sisko's dad. I saw that um, mm. when I was looking him up, but I haven't seen Deep Space Nine yet either, so. <laughs> okay, uh, Star Trek Four. you had very heightened expectations. We had a lot of people who wanted to tell us things about this and talk about this and tell you how great it was. Did you enjoy it? I absolutely did enjoy it. The, okay. The trend continues that I actually really like these original series Star Trek movies. <laughs> <laughs> You're being very definite with how you put that. <laughs> Just in case the rest of them end up rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> well, up to number four. I really like them. <laughs> um, anything in particular that appealed to you? What about it did you like so much? I I think I well the dialogue was hysterical. I think my favorite thing was just watching the characters interact with each other. Because I mean like you said Nimoy's vision was that this wasn't going to be this grand action-filled bombastic thing. It was supposed to be just kind of having fun watching it and you could tell that they had fun filming it. Mm. I mean you can't have a line like a double dumbass on you and not have fun filming that. I'm sorry, you just can't. I was reading some of the movie reviews on this one and Roger Ebert's opening for his review, I think is absolutely spot on to how I feel about this movie. He Mm. said, 
When they finished writing the script for Star Trek IV, they must have had a lot of silly grins on their faces. This is easily the most absurd of the Star Trek stories, and yet, oddly enough, it is also the best, the funniest, and the most enjoyable in simple human terms. I'm relieved that nothing like restraint or common sense stood in their way. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. I think that is pretty perfect. I mean, come on. This is a movie about whales having to save humanity like time traveling whales having to save humanity (laughs) yeah so i went and checked out the trailer for this and the trailer is very much like oh earth's in danger we have to go back in time we go back in time we have shenanigans now we go back forward in time It, it does a lot of the plot in two minutes i'm sorry we're very quickly glossing over we have to go back in time (laughs) (laughs) And even in the film, when they, they come to this conclusion, it's just like, well, there's this thing and we have to get stuff from the past, but, or, or rather, they don't, they don't exist anymore. Well, clearly we have to go back in time and get some whales. Oh, okay. Let's just slingshot around the sun. Like it's all just given. Yeah. Well, okay, so that actually is a really good question. The way they presented time travel in this movie was that it was not a new thing. So is this the first time time travel was introduced into the world of Star Trek? They did it in um, the original series. Okay. But it it felt like more of an accident to me anyway. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's there's one where they they basically do this thing and it's an accident. And then I think they do it on purpose another time. And then there's other times they do it that are caused by other reasons. Right, of course. Like a mystical doorway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there is just very much this thing of, oh, we've done it before. You're really going to try time travel in this rust bucket? We've done it before. Sure, slingshot around the sun, pick up enough speed, you're in time warp. If you don't, you're fried. Would you prefer to do nothing? I prefer a dose of common sense. And we can do it again. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah, well, we so just... one of my thoughts here was if time travel is really this easy, why don't they do it more often? I think they play up the danger of it. This is not necessarily uh, easy. Might I'm not sure if that's the word, but like this is a thing that could go very well. Okay, right. They also try not so much in in this one, but in like future iterations of Star Trek to really pin down like we could really mess up the timeline, like we could do some real damage to history here. They talk about it a little bit in in Star Trek Four, but it's kind of jokey. Uh, but as you go on, they even introduce like the temporal prime directive. Mm, okay, for time travel situations, and then they have uh, even further on a department of temporal investigations <laughs> who like go and have to talk to you if you've done any sort of time travel to make sure you didn't screw anything up. And uh, I think it's a DS9 episode where they talk about how much they hate Kirk. Mm. Be specific, Captain. Which Enterprise? There have been five. Six. This was the first Enterprise. Constitution class. His ship. James T. Kirk. The one and only. Seventeen separate temporal violations. The biggest file on record. Man was a menace. What was the date of your arrival? Stardate 4523.7. And in five years, one month, 12 days ago. A Friday. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay. Uh, the two characters based on Mulder and Scully, I think. 
But they have their own uh, series of novels now, too, oh, really? and they're hilarious. <laughs> Somehow, in, in one of the DTI novels, there is a Borg Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like, they're just completely <laughs> absurd, which means I highly recommend them. <laughs> a Borg Tyrannosaurus like Rex. Yeah, it's it's bonkers. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. They they don't really, I mean, very, very lightly, they don't go to, we could be killing our own grandparents or, right. you know, by taking out these animals, we could be the ones who actually cause the extinction. Mm-hmm. Any of this stuff that you could play around with. Nah, we'll just well, go Well, they had them. one moment where, you know, Bones is like, wait, how do we know that we're not messing time up? And Scotty's like, well, how do we know he didn't actually invent it? And like, that's it. They just kind of glossed over bringing this technology yeah. back. Yeah. There's no care given to it whatsoever. They are here for the silliness. That's yeah. That's the point of this film. Um, but no, so it then goes to the idea of we want to bring whales back, which isn't mentioned in the trailer. And it, it ends up with this very whole thing about the ecological message is the important part of all this. Did you feel that that was preachy or that it was too much? I probably should have, but I didn't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it was very like heavy handed preachy, but we live in a fairly preachy time anyway. Now and so I think in in the lens of 2018, it didn't really feel that extreme, but in 1986, maybe it was. I feel like the preachiest, or I guess one of the preachiest parts, is really when they're taking the tour of the Cetacean Institute, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they give us like actual footage of this documentary of whalers. Yeah, and it's quite upsetting, but honestly. In at least in my opinion, not out of place for a museum presentation mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. It felt like that's what I would have seen if I had been at that aquarium, and right. I believe it. Um, we we jump forward. What really struck me, especially this time around, is as they're you know going to drop off George and Gracie in the Alaskan waters, that there is a whaling boat just sitting there waiting for them. Right. Yeah. Like, that was quite upsetting. Um, but I, th- I think the, like, most eye-rolly, heavy-handed part is when Kirk says, like, You know, it's ironic. When man was killing these creatures, he was destroying his own future. Okay, dude, chill out. <laughs> yeah. The, the bit that doesn't stand out in the film, but as soon as you hear it out of context, you go, oh, that's that's pretty heavy, is... Spock's thing of judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, I believe we have arrived at the latter half of the 20th century. Yeah. Like, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're polluting it. Yeah. We know. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but also, they'd get a much more accurate date and time if they instead used the relative positions of all the other stars and planets. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to make a point about how gross humans are. Yeah. Or like a radio or any signal boat bouncing around. I wanted to address the whale specifically. I'm going to say briefly. I'm not sure how briefly. Uh, we had uh, an email from Lauren, who came and joined us a couple of weeks ago for Nightmare Before Christmas at Six Legged Knits, uh, with some very interesting comments about the whales. Um, her first comment was that the 
whale biology just seemed so ridiculous that it threw her out of the film. And it made it very hard to mm. really engage with it after there. No, I wanted a little bit more detail. I got a little bit more detail. We got a really interesting letter about um the whale biology and the, the whaling commission. Uh, Lauren did want to stress the point that she's not a marine biologist. Uh, she wanted to be, so did study them at high school, uh, but ended up in aquatic insects, which might be as far from whales as you can get in ecology without working with microbes, apparently. <laughs> so, um, the sort of three most relevant points, uh, or three mo- uh, most interesting points, uh, apparently the, the, these whales are baleen whales and they are larger. And since their prey is smaller, they require a lot more ocean area to live in than toothed whales, things like orca, dolphins. Uh, they are highly migratory. They travel around in cold water areas to warm water mating and birthing locations, which is not true of toothed whales. And they are famous for... Toothed whales are famous for living in highly social groups and remaining in the group for their entire life. But baleen whales do cooperate sometimes for feeding or defense purposes, but they are not known for this highly structured social group. The most common long-term association seen among baleen whales is a few mothers with calves that team up and hang out together rather than each mother going it alone with their calf. Uh, all of this combines into one fact. You cannot keep baleen whales in captivity. And humpback whales would not even be the easiest to keep if you could. They are too dang big. They are 40 to 60 foot uh, compared to an orca, which is 16 to 23 foot. The tank size and feeding requirements plus the activity intelligence of the animals are extremely limiting. Some others have been kept in in captivity for short periods, but these will be smaller whales, mostly juveniles. Um, and they are often released because they are too difficult to care for. Additionally, even if the whales in the film had not been kept, even temporarily by the aquarium, you would not see a male-female pair outside of the active mating or parent-child relationship because this isn't the sort of grouping that they form. Also, because I'm a giant nerd, those are her words, not mine, but also yes, and this is exactly the right place for this sort of thing, I went and found the blueprints for the Burrell-class Klingon bird of prey. Based on some back-of-the-envelope calculations, the maximum possible size of the cargo bay would likely be something of 40 foot by 140 foot by 13 foot. Not sure how wide or tall humpback whales are. Only length and tonnage is commonly recorded, but I think it would be a tight squeeze for two whales next to each other in at least two out of the three dimensions. Now, they do show them in fairly close proximity, but they also show them with a lot of space around them. Mm -hmm. So... Not to mention two organisms is not sufficient to repopulate a species. Sorry, stowaway marine biologist lady, but the whales are still doomed. (laughs) There is one more important difference between baleen and toothed whales. With the exception of the sperm whale, toothed whales have not generally been subject to extreme pressure from whaling as baleen whales have been. The IUCN Red List, an international list of endangered species has listed humpback whales as least concerned in 2008. Basically, the history of this is that there were moratoriums on whaling introduced from, I think, 66 through to 86, uh, which helped to start some repopulation. And in fact, I I think I've seen some tweets from Leonard Nimoy about this very thing, because he's obviously interested in it. Um, Most of the various populations around the world are now candidates for delisting in the United States under the Endangered Species Act. Provided we don't screw it up with anything new, I would say we have successfully saved the humpback whale with my 2019 perspective. But going back to 1986, Spock leads off the plot by stating that humpback whales had gone extinct in the 21st century. 
given that stocks had been recovering a little in the 1966-1986 time, it seems a little pessimistic to me, but makes perfect sense for a propaganda piece aimed at making people love whales and support the ban. So in conclusion, this may be the most charming piece of green propaganda I've ever come across. Maybe <laughs> maybe Fern Gully, Fern Gully should be in the mix, but it's green propaganda, not a Star Trek film. Lauren, thank you so much, because that is awesome, and that is exactly the sort of detail I wanted, so perfect. Uh, I think it can be both. It can be a green film plus a Star Trek film. I think I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I think it does pretty well at both. Yeah, but it is very much the, exactly like the quote from Leonard Nimoy up top. They wanted this to try to do something a little bit different, a little bit socially relevant, mm-hmm. uh, rather than just revenge across the stars. And I, I feel like this is one of the closest, certainly of the four films we've seen, that comes to something they might do on the TV show. Yeah. I think they tried to take some of this in account, the, the stuff that Lauren has said, because in, in the movie, they did specifically call out that the tank that they were held in was the largest salt water tank in the world. So they were trying to do something, you know, give them more space because they are so large. And they specifically said the reason that they had to release them was because they couldn't afford, it cost $2.5 million a day to feed them. And so I think they were hoping that those two things would kind of be enough for people to gloss over some of the stuff that Lauren's pointing out. Yeah, there's also a question of how much of all of that information was known in 1986. Hmm. Oh, that's true. I certainly don't know. I mean, we're talking about 30 plus years of additional study, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um yeah, and she did say some of that in the in the full email. Um yeah. but I thought they were actually really useful and interesting points. Oh, for sure. But I mean, to, it's, it's what happens whenever we fictionalize a story, right? You kind of have to hand wave some things in order to get to your greater point, mm-hmm. which is basically Star Trek Four saves the whales. <laughs> yeah. I think my favorite point that, that Lauren made was about the size of the ship because mm-hmm. she's absolutely right. Those two whales should not have been able to fit in that cargo hold, and the tank they beamed them onto was not even the size of the full cargo hold. They had room to walk around mm-hmm. still um, and, and watch the whales, which I think is hilarious. But I imagine in 1986, they had no idea that we would have this thing one day called the Internet where we could look up <laughs> things like blueprints <laughs> of the, the fictional spaceships. This is why we call Scotty a miracle worker. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> she think he shrank them with a t- transporter. <laughs> well, we do have scenes where we see him welding. So maybe he like just took over the entire deck and <laughs> maybe. knocked down all the walls. There's no crew quarters, no mess, nothing like that. <laughs> well, there are only like 11 people on the yeah. ship. <laughs> maybe there's some uh, like Doctor Who crossover Time Lord technology going on and bigger yeah. on the inside <laughs> i i do oh. do appreciate the creaking effects when they beam them aboard yes and that you can feel this is having an impact on this you know it's a big ship anyway but it is struggling under the strain of these things oh i mean typically ships built for space travel are would not stand the pressures of a planet so mm. already it's a little bit strange that the 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 klingon ship can land Right. Mm, going into the atmosphere, yeah. Right. And then you're putting water, tons of water <laughs> inside and trying to leave the atmosphere. There's extra strain on the engines. They're powering the ship with 
stolen nuclear power from i mean it's all just ludicrous the science in this so i just sit back and enjoy it um but i i do question you know with with my little bit of environmental science like i don't know if humpback whales are what they call a keystone species but i do wonder when you take these two animals who haven't lived in an ecosystem for 200 years and drop them back into it would the waters of San Francisco Bay in the 23rd century even be able to sustain them? Is there a food source there? What about the water temperatures? You know, presumably we've taken care of pollution by Kirk's time. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's a real good thing that Jillian Taylor came back mm. to take care of her whales. But then she leaves on a science vessel. So <laughs> it's all very confusing. Yeah, they're fine. They can take care of themselves. I do wish every now and then, like, when other Star Trek was visiting the Academy or Starfleet headquarters or whatever in San Francisco, that we'd see, like, a whale breach in the background or someone would remark on, like, I'm sure glad Kirk got those whales back all those years ago. You know? Oh, that would be a great Easter egg. (laughs) We've now overpopulated humpback whales. The ships Mm -hmm. are going to be run on whale blubber. (laughs) (laughs) so we've talked a bit on time travel and a bit on whales that the probe is the big thing in this um leonard nimoy said he didn't want there to be an antagonist there's this thing that turns up and they just say it shuts everything down there's no hope of destroying it because you just get shut down so you've got to find a way to work with it how did that work to everyone not having an antagonist just a thing that rocks up and does whatever it does I mean, it felt very reminiscent of V'ger to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, slightly less proactive or, I mean, it didn't actually do anything like V'ger did, but still it's, it's not something that's trying to actively defeat anything like we had with Khan and Klingon Doc Brown. Can't remember his name now. Yep. <laughs> um, so it, it felt very much in the vein of Star Trek movies that I've seen since okay. now half of them have not had an actual tangible villain. I mean, the probe is not malicious. Right. Or at least not intentionally malicious. But I also don't think of it as the villain. I think that this film is trying to tell us that humanity is the villain. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets heavy handed again. Like, if we keep doing what we're doing, we're going to destroy our future is like the underlying environmental message of this film. Right. And I think that's the villain. Mm-hmm. I think I looked at it more as if there just was no villain, but you're absolutely right with the message that they were giving us. Humanity was presented as the villain. So do we have any theories on the probe, on where it came from, what it's actually doing? Is it just a sort of... There's clearly a world out there somewhere that's populated by by something similar to humpback whales, or at least share a similar language. Or maybe the whales are aliens, (laughs) and they were on a scouting mission. (laughs) Who knows? I made up this whole story in my head that, you know, 10,000 years ago, some alien species visited Earth and figured out how to communicate with the whales, like, somehow. 
because they're massively superior to us. I don't know. And so they were just coming back to check on their old friends, the whales. I I think that's what the story actually is supposed to be. Because there was a book written after this called Probe. Um, okay. About the probe and peace with Romulans. Which has its whole own thing because one of the writers at the time wrote it. They hated it and carved it up and someone else rewrote it. And and her book you can actually get if you email her, apparently. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I think the actual story of it was exactly, exactly that. It's like, oh, they're checking on how whales around the universe are doing. Mm-hmm. Thinking that's what will become the evolved species, as it were. Right. Because they, I mean, the probe, the aliens who sent the probe, what have you, just weren't being malicious like you said sue they had no idea there were other species that they could harm with their probe because they had only talked to the whales you know so in in my head i was able to like kind of hand wavy it and just accept it nice so was there anything in the film that stood out that you wanted to touch on or was it just it was all joyful and fabulous it was mostly joyful and silly and fabulous (laughs) nice (laughs) what what in it did you enjoy the most Honestly, hands down, my favorite thing in this movie is Jillian. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, love, love that she has no time for Kirk and his flirting. And when, she, you know, when she goes back with him or forward with him, when she goes to the 23rd century with him, like she makes this whole decision to go live her own life that has nothing to do with Kirk. And he's surprised by it. Like, you're leaving? Mm. And she's like... Wait a minute, where are you going? You're going to your ship, I'm going to mine. Science vessel. I got 300 years of catch-up learning to do. You mean this is goodbye? Why does it have to be goodbye? Well, like they say in your century, I don't even have your telephone number. (laughs) (laughs) How will I find you? Don't worry. You know, she's going to go do her thing. And I just really, really, really want a television show of Jillian learning about the 23rd century. Yeah, she just is such a wonderful character, even from her introduction and how passionate she is. I think I think the performance is very good for that mm-hmm. to come across. Um, but yeah, you're right. As a character, she is utterly his equal. When he tries to give mm-hmm. that, that giggle, it, it, when you comment about the flirting, that's what makes me think. When he's like, ah, ha, ha, ha. And she just looks at him and goes, uh-huh. The truth? Oh, I'm all ears. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are we moving on now? <laughs> she is one of, if not the only, like, Kirk love interest character to leave on her own terms. Absolutely. But she also... we get to see her do her job mm. multiple times and be good at it and be passionate about it, mm-hmm. which is kind of new and different for the Star Trek films and really Star Trek, the original series. Mm-hmm. Um, even my, my biggest frustration with this film, as far as the characters go, is how much they take away from Uhura, mm. actually. If you pay close attention to her interactions, every response she gives when she's asked if she can do something is, I'll try my best, or I'm as ready as I'll ever be, which totally take away 
her abilities. This is a woman who is the head of communications on your ship, Mm -hmm. speaks multiple languages, and in the movies, they make her, quite frankly, dumb and unsure. It's not this one, but in one of them, she suddenly can't speak Klingon. Yep. Like, it's it's quite frustrating. Yeah, and especially it's Spock who realizes about the... Uh, that this is aimed at whales and aimed at the ocean. I, I kind of, I can buy him knowing it's aimed at the ocean, but you get her great moment of remixing the sounds, and then he goes off and researches it himself. Mm-hmm. And he's the the only one not from Earth. Yeah. And he's the one who figures out it's for whales. Like, <laughs> okay. Ah, and, and Nimoy wrote this, and his character's the smartest. Ah, interesting. Mm. <laughs> I mean, his character's always been the smartest. <laughs> I, I do love the moment when Gillian Taylor goes to the um, to the park and she runs into the ship and falls over and then is feeling the ship. <laughs> her mind work is genuinely very good. <laughs> She's been practicing her space work and, you know, is, is feeling the leg of the ship and all of this. It's like, it's, that's actually a very good moment. Yeah. I love all the little touches of that too, that like there's a squashed garbage mm. can. And the the area is depressed by a couple of inches. It's just it's so good. And and I particularly enjoyed when they beam her onto the ship. Her reaction to it made me think of the end of Infinity War. <laughs> and that kind of I don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting because I think that's the first time and this could be completely wrong, but it's in my memory, the first time I can recall somebody talking about what it feels like to go through a transporter. Because mm. in yeah. my mind, it's just, it's something that, that always happens. It's normal. People are just used to it and they're in one place and then they're in another place. But she obviously could feel that something was happening to her. And I just found that an interesting detail. Yeah, it, it really nice. Again, a great bit of the performance when she comes on board and she is very wobbly. Yeah. You know, oh, this is a really strange experience because most people that we see in Star Trek have probably grown up from birth having it mm-hmm. yeah it's great she also has one of my favorite lines in the film i don't know about you but my compassion for someone is not limited to my estimate of their intelligence yes mm. and i just want to like high five her yeah <laughs> yeah her n- not buying into the sort of star trekness of it in places mm-hmm. yeah she's she does this job because she loves it and she's good at it and she's a decent person i i wish we'd had just a moment with her to know her sort of personal background a bit. She has that great line of, you know, there's nothing for me here now. Because mm-hmm. clearly the whales are her thing. Mm-hmm. I just wish we'd had a little bit more about why she feels she can she can just disappear from this time and go with them. Uh, uh, just to give her her own agency a bit more. Because it's just she's now wrapped up in their adventure. Yeah, I think she even says, I have no one here. Mm. Which is like kind of out of nowhere a surprise yeah but if we if we'd had a bit following her to see uh, she has no family she has no friends her workers i think just something Mm -hmm. um just to center her a little bit more but it's done very well i don't want that to take away from what we actually get yeah it helps that they made it her choice to go it wasn't i mean Mm. you said she gets wrapped up in their adventure but she wasn't going for them she was going for the whales 
And, and yeah. I like, I think that makes it better that it was something that she decided to do for herself and for these creatures that she genuinely loves. She wasn't doing it to help Kirk. She wasn't doing it because she had some sort of knowledge or information that they needed. She simply went because she wanted to. Hmm. Yeah. She didn't believe them at first. Right. And she didn't, she didn't want any part of this. She just kind of found these weird guys. She was like, okay, weirdos, whatever. And it was her, her last hope, like her last ditch effort was to go back and see if he was somehow telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's when she gets pulled into their situation. So sadly, we've never run out of um, women characters to talk about, but was there anything else, Mandy? Did you guys catch the Kirk facepalm? So I have a note that the Kirk facepalm predates Picard's. It was hilarious. Okay. Um, it was when he caught uh, Spock in the tank at the museum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the shots of him okay. and he just does this facepalm. <laughs> and I'm like, that's hilarious. Um, and, and in that same scene, Spock trying to use the colorful metaphors. I assure you that won't be necessary. We're only trying to help. The hell you were, Buster. Your friend was messing up my tanks and messing up my whales. They like you very much, but they are not the hell your whales. I, I suppose they've told you that, huh? The hell they did. They like you very much, <laughs> but they are not the hell your whales. <laughs> but it's so matter of fact. So yeah. matter so of fact. Good. It's great. All right, who the hell are you and what were you doing in there? Yeah, speak up, though. Attempting the hell to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> And just watching Kirk, like, so confidently try to use this language, you know, I mean, I said this line already, well, a double dumbass on you, like, it makes no sense, but he just delivers it so confidently, and I know this is how people talk in the 20th century. Yeah. No, ma'am, no dipshit. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think I really enjoy Spock's literalness, um, which we get in every in every movie because this is just who Spock is, but sometimes it just, it comes out in unexpected ways. So Jillian asks him, sure you won't change your mind. Is there something wrong with the one I have? And it was just an unexpected response, but perfectly spot on for the character. So I just, I like little character moments like that. And there were actually a lot of them in this movie. I think that because this movie lacked the like the action villain of say Khan, we got to see a lot of character interaction. So like Kirk telling Bones to stay put when he's going off with Spock to try and figure out what's going on, and Bones is like, "No, I have to keep an eye on him," you know. And and yeah. uh, Scotty talking to the computer. Perhaps the professor could use your computer, please. Computer? Computer? Ah. Hello, computer. Just use the keyboard. The keyboard. How quaint. (laughs) It's hilarious. So they, they wrote the characters really, really well. I, I like that the exploring San Francisco allows them to pair people up a little differently. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think we get Scotty and McCoy or Uhura and Chekhov elsewhere. Um, and to be fair, Uhura and Chekhov don't get to do much as a pair particularly. 
but it is just good to see that this is a team and they'll work with whoever they need to work mm-hmm. with. And they all get a chance to shine. Mm. Like, that's what we, I, at least I am missing from some of the earlier movies because it's all Kirk's Buck McCoy. Right? Yeah. And that's yeah. what, that's what the original series is based on. But we get these hilarious moments with our other characters. Mm-hmm. And they're so in character as well. I just, I love them. With all of my heart, I love that Chekhov, in a heavy Russian fake accent, is asking about nuclear vessels in San Francisco and a naval base in 1986. Did you find it? Yes, under U.S. government. Now we need directions. Excuse me, sir. Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's perfection. And then he's he's sassing the, the Navy guy without even knowing it. Mm. And Scotty on the computer. And my but my, my absolute favorite is when McCoy is in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And this is the the apparently the guest podcast where everyone knows everything about my life. Um I absolutely <laughs> love when McCoy finds this woman. What's the matter with you? Kidney dialysis. Dialysis? My God, what is this, the Dark Ages? Here, you swallow that. And if you have any problems, just call me. (laughs) Um, The reason that this bit means so much to me is my dad has kidney disease. Okay. And the thing about kidney disease is that a lot of it is chronic. So... If you're on dialysis, all it's doing is taking the place of your kidneys. It's not actually, like, Mm. helping to heal you in any way. Mm -hmm. And when you do get a transplant, if you have a a chronic kidney disease, it's going to start attacking the new kidney. So, right, it's it's never fully better. But this idea that Star Trek, in 200 years, we could have a pill, I know it's ridiculous. It's hope for the medical science of the future. Um, cause dialysis is horrendous. It's hours, two or three times a week, and all of your blood is taken out of you and put back into you. Mm-hmm. Even when you have the kidney transplant, you are, it's a constant, uh, blood checks, checking your kidney function, uh, non-rejection drug treatments. It's a lot. And it's just, it's a hope for the future, a hope for advancement of science and technology that is not always mm. the focus of Star Trek. And I just, I love it so much that she's, it's not just here, take this pill and go away. It's then they're trying to escape and she's being rolled down the hallway. And the doctors behind her are like, what happened? <laughs> this is amazing. I love yeah, it so and, much. And she's so excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is clearly at this point ten years younger. So happy not to be going through this thing. Just well, she just she went, got oh. her life back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I know about what dialysis is in 2018, 2019. Luckily, my dad has had a transplant, which is a better option. But I, I know a lot about this now. I can't imagine what it was like in 1986. Yeah, it, it's it's a it, it is a terrific moment, and you're right. It is such a good Star Trek moment. Because mm-hmm. all the stuff like transporters and warp speed is kind of taken for granted at this point. But it's, oh, no, we can just, you know, 
fix that. Got a cold, we can fix that. Need a new kidney, we can fix that. Yeah, and well, and it's such a it's such a great like insight into Bones's character because he doesn't know this woman. All he knows is in this like brief like five second interaction with her that she's undergoing dialysis and he knows he can fix it. And so he mm-hmm. just hands it to her and walks away. That's it. Mm. Like all he, he is such a doctor, you know, his mindset <laughs> is to fix people and he has the technology to do it. I'm actually a little bit surprised he didn't stick around and make more of an impact in the hospital, but I guess they didn't have time, but it was definitely when, a great moment. Hmm. When they're doing the escape, they knock over someone on crutches and casts, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he is stopping. Like, are you okay? What can I? Can I? And you even see Kirk. Like, no bones. Right. Going. And it's such a brief moment, but it is him. Like, oh god, we've knocked over. Oh, I can't believe I just. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> He's so. We we see his character so often as being like gruff and grumpy and sassy, but when he's actually acting in his doctor capacity. He has a lot of compassion, mm-hmm. and I think we gloss over that a lot. But I mean, he might not have the best bedside manner, but he he has the smarts and he has the desire to improve the lives of the people around him. And like a plus doctoring. There's there's a really nice pair of scenes with him and Spock, which they they do in every film because mm-hmm. they, that is a relationship we come to it for. But early on, where. He's trying to talk to him about death and you know, he's saying, you really have gone to where no man's gone before. And it's, it's snarky and they're not getting on and they're not gelling and it's, it's kind of back to how it always was. But then at the end, he goes to Spock and he says, you look like you're in a quandary. What's going on? And he helps him through the problem of doing, dealing with the calculations, dealing with the whales. And there's a real sense of kind of burying the hatchet and actually working as friends at that point. Mm-hmm. It's a little moment, but it's, yeah, they, they write him really well in this. Mm-hmm. I, I think just going through th- this list as we're talking about it, there are so many small moments in the film, mm-hmm. things that are really funny or mean such uh, something really good for characters. It just as a film, it does it so right all the way through. I mean, there's just things I've got on my notes and things that I know you put on your your thoughts, Doc Mandy, of just you know, Sulu looking at the helicopter is such pure joy. Mm-hmm. He's so happy, like, oh, this is lovely. Can I ask you some questions? <laughs> And jokes about the colourful metaphors, Spock covering his ears up. There's just all the way through. It's constant comedy, but not in the same way Star Trek II was a bit. It was constantly McCoy and Kirk making jokes about things. This doesn't have that same level of snark. It's just fun. Mm -hmm. And I love that from the TOS crew. Like, my favourite episodes Mm. are when they're campy and goofy and ridiculous. And it's just, it's so joyful. Yeah, they've all been together so long at this point. It's great. Yeah, I like how they also weave in some sentimentality into all of this because of the relationships they have. Like at the end, you get um, Spock standing up with them and he says, Mr. President, I stand with my shipmates, even though he's not actually in trouble. You get the throughout the whole thing. We had the the thread of Spock and feelings. You know, like his IQ test at the beginning asked, how do you feel? And his mom was trying to explain why. And so at the very end, his message back to her is tell her, I feel fine. You know, and th- those are very small threads, but they're, they pull at my little heartstrings and it just adds to the the warm fuzzies that I have when I think about movies like this. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So something else the film does really well that I've not 
I don't feel like I've seen elsewhere in Star Trek done as well as it is here is some of the diversity of the various roles we see. The film almost opens up on the very first female starship captain that we ever see, Starfleet captain. Mm. And and she's black, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, which I think might also be the first time it's been a person of colour in charge of a starship. And then later on, we get a tennis star, but an Indian tennis star who's in charge of a starship. And we get the fleet admiral, who is a person of colour. And it's just, the film isn't drawing attention to it. I know I am now, but it's just, this is how the future is. We just have, you know, people in roles who are good at their, what they do. Mm-hmm. It's great. I love the way they talk about Earth as well. They they don't say, the central planets of the Federation, you know, the Federation will collapse without this. It's just avoid the Terran system don't come to Earth it's attacking that planet specifically it's not it's not making a big deal it is just another planet in a huge federation of planets Mm -hmm. yeah I was actually confused for most of the movie about who the president actually was because I didn't know is this like the president of Earth is it the president of what like I, I don't really understand how the government hierarchy works here but then at the end they specify he is the president of the federation of planets and i was like oh that actually makes more sense now yeah they don't say that earth is the center of the federation but it is the location of like federation headquarters Mm -hmm. in paris Mm. it is the location of starfleet academy in san francisco right (laughs) you know we're we're pretty human centric in star trek but you know what are you gonna do yeah but I, I like that they don't write it in that way in this one. Yeah. Although... I mean, you're absolutely right, it is. <laughs> yeah, and and talking about the diversity, I mean, a lot of stuff you hear now is... Or or rather, what, what filmmakers are being told or just urged to do is to include more diversity, especially even in the background characters. It's one of the mm. easiest ways to make your movies feel like they take place in our world because if everybody looks the same, that's not the world we live in. Mm. And especially starting in this film, I think Star Trek is really successful at it. And it looks very much like they made an effort to do it, but it doesn't feel out of place. Yeah. They even made an effort to diversify the alien species. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were Mm. so many like just background characters in those like the court martial scenes where everybody was gathered to talk about what Kirk had done and what his punishment was going to be. And they're alien species that I am not familiar with. They're not, you know, prominent ones in the Star Trek universe, but they were making an effort to show the universe is bigger than we've seen. Yeah. That there's a real sort of Star Wars vibe to it almost. Yes. With, with some of them, absolutely. Like the one with a really big, like furry head, big eyes. Yes. And every now and then you get, like, canonistas complaining, like, we've never seen that alien before. Well, (laughs) there are 183 members of the United Federation of Planets. We've met, like, what, 15 of them? Yeah, yeah. It's totally reasonable to have background aliens walking around that we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. Chill out. (laughs) And and then others who complain when Kelpians are introduced. Right. (laughs) And they're not even a member world. Yeah. No one's happy. No one's ever happy. Um, you, you did a Women at Warp recently about minor characters. Mm-hmm. So very, very short single episode type characters. The USS Saratoga with that captain, 
you know, an absolute science vessel that appears to be patrolling the edge of the neutral zone. There's a story there, and I really want to know it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think we mentioned that's the one that has the the black woman captain, right? Mm, yeah. I th- I think we mentioned her in our our captain's episode as well. Uh, okay, yeah. Did she ever get a name? I don't think she did. I I feel like she does in the credits. Uh, okay, Wikipedia. I don't remember it. <laughs> Wikipedia says. No, the actress herself is even uncredited. So no, she's definitely not in the credits. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. Hopefully she has a name in the novelization. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she's listed here as Saratoga Captain. Hmm. Great. Well on her. One of the other things that I love about this film is the sounds. Um, the, the soundtrack, I think, is phenomenal. It is a very different soundtrack to the rest of Star Trek. It's not... James Horner, it's not some of the sort of uh, big bands that we we get in the series and the other movies. Um, the person who did it, a chap called Leonard Rosenman. And it really does stand out. It's got this slightly fantastical bombast to it. But he changes it all the way through when they're escaping from the hospital. There is a whole Russian element to it that I'm sure is just because it's a Chekhov scene. Mm-hmm. But that's a level of detail you don't often get from your soundtrack. Star Trek's always about reusing things quite often throughout films. Um, and he appears to have done a lot of very different tracks all the way through this. It, it always catches me out because at least one of the tracks here is reused, or I think this reuses from his Lord of the Rings animated soundtrack. Hmm. So when it starts, I'm always like, oh, that's not Lord of the Rings, but kind of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> I did find myself missing the traditional Star Trek theme music from this. Right. We finally got a few notes of it at the end. But mm. even then, it was kind of buried in a much larger piece. And I don't and probably in 1986, I mean this was the fourth movie, they didn't need to generate the emotional nostalgia from it like they did in the first one. But coming at it now, I just I've come to expect it. And so mm-hmm. it was noticeably missing for me. Did did you enjoy? Did the new music stand out other than it was different? It well, I guess it did because I paid attention enough to it to recognize in the middle of of one of those pieces at the end that that it became familiar. So I was already listening to it. I just mm. I'm not sure that I was doing it on purpose. Okay, it was just there. <laughs> I didn't dislike it. I, I need those three notes. Just give me that bit. <laughs> yes, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But even over the soundtrack, I love the sound effects of it. Like, like I say, the creaking of the ship when they beam the whales aboard. The probe noise is so unique. If you heard that, you would know what film it's from. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I love Uhura remixing it, that it goes through sequences of remix. Um, so it, she doesn't just go, oh, here's what it sounds like underwater. She has to work at it and do it, and it sounds different every time. Mm-hmm. The, the, all the way through the film, the, I think the, the sound effects that they present to us are really good at supporting the story. And then finally, I wanted to talk about Spock and Sarek, because they have a scene at the end that for me is just beautifully done. Um It's building on the relationship we saw them have in the series, where they didn't talk to each other, they didn't want to work together. It has kept Spark and Sarek from speaking as father and son for 18 years. Spark is my best officer. And my friend. I'm glad he has such a friend. It hasn't been easy on Spark. 
neither human nor Vulcan. At home, nowhere, except Starfleet. And there is... That underlies this scene really well because you can feel they are putting it behind them, they're moving on, and and Sarek is effectively apologising to his son for having been so hard on him. As I recall, I opposed your enlistment in Starfleet. It is possible that judgment was incorrect. Your associates are people of good character. They are my friends. Yes, of course. I think I think particularly now, with everything we got from Discovery, it works even better because we know that history even more. Yes, absolutely. I actually at several points in this film, I my brain went, Oh, that Discovery picked that up. Oh, that's mm. referenced in Discovery. And uh I think especially the scene with, with Spock and Sarek, the you know I opposed you going to the Federation into Starfleet. Mm. It's it it brings in a lot of that that story that they set up with Michael and Sarek in Discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it works. So Sarek is such a minor character in this, but actually, he gets to do some really good stuff. And I I love when you see that final shot of him just as they're about to go into the past, and he's looking out. That we then return to later, and he spots them coming in. It's almost like he knows how Spock thinks, and he knows that he will try to bring them back to exactly this time. Mm-hmm. So I should start looking out for them so I can see them first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great film. This is a very easy one to gush about. It is. I, it's so good. I do have one question, though. Mm-hmm. Cool. It did not appear that very much time had passed um, at the end of the movie whenever they unveiled the new Enterprise that he was going to get yeah. to Captain. Mm-hmm. How did they build a brand new enterprise that quickly because it felt like from the perspective of this movie three months have passed since the enterprise was destroyed can you build an entire starfleet ship in three months probably not (laughs) they could have been building it anyway and they just decided to make it the enterprise maybe yeah okay maybe that was my last I mean, we, question, was how did they do that in just three months? <laughs> <laughs> we we don't know how much time passes between the trial and that moment, of course. Mm-hmm. It is implied it's pretty instant. I think it's supposed to be that time has passed between the par- the trial and that moment. Mm. But they because they're all in uniform, mm. like it's not like they could have changed clothes. Right. Really? Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think that's what, what does it a disservice. But... Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the trial for half a second. Yeah. Because cool. this is the the thing that Star Trek does over and over again. There are no consequences if you are a member <laughs> of the Enterprise. <laughs> I mean, you did all this horrible stuff. You committed murder. You started a war. You did whatever. But you also saved the planet. So don't worry about it. Mm. But also you disobeyed orders. So you get to be a captain, which is what you really wanted all along anyway. Right. <laughs> so extra reward. And literally everyone in that room is like excited and applauding for them. I can't imagine that there is nobody in that Federation Council chamber who's like oh, just a little bit pissed off. Yeah, the captain of the Excelsior is probably like, hey, remember my ship? Remember <laughs> what they did to my ship? <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, yeah. and maybe that's why it's the dream posting. Oh, I'm on the Enterprise. No consequences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I liked it. <laughs> oh, it, it really works narratively, but yeah. uh, they could have had something more in there. And, and then especially because they are given a brand new ship. The same as the old ship, mm-hmm. but still brand new. Right. Mm. Let's let's see what has the future has in store for that ship. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, that's something they do really well in in the, the most recent Kelvin one. They have a whole sequence of the ship being rebuilt, but it's just super high speed. Mm-hmm. So we can see that time is passing, but actually, we don't need to watch it. That is a very nice moment. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Star Trek Four? We've been talking for a little while now. Mm. Um, I, I haven't written the question down. I did want to ask a question about the colourful metaphors. Um, this film has quite a bit of swearing in it, particularly for Star Trek. Um, and I could see someone taking issue with it. I, I was made to think of this because um, Josie at Josbot7 said that this was the first movie my parents willingly took me to that contained both questionable language and someone drinking alcohol. To this day, I can't hear the word Mitchellob without picturing my mum cringe at the sight of such debauchery on screen. <laughs> it, it's mild swearing, but it is often and frequent. Mm-hmm. Is is it too much? Is there actually an age at which we could introduce someone to this? What are your thoughts? As as people who I don't think any of us have kids, but I think it started out as people uh, as the the writers trying to comment on how much people swear in day to day life. But you know what? That's life. Um, I I get sometimes the arguments that viewers have of I want to be able to watch it with my kids you know what, your kids hear the swear words at school. Mm-hmm. I certainly did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I know I was swearing at school in my regular language long before. Well, actually, I still don't do it in front of my family. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's part of how we speak. And for some people, it, it bothers them more than others. But I I really do not have a problem with it. I think it, it makes a, especially if we want to, want to talk about discovery again, I think it makes the characters more relatable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, mm. Because it's what I would say, you know? <laughs> yeah. Science is effing cool. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Tilly. See, she knew what we were talking about. My cat. Oh, did named, she? <laughs> my cat named Tilly. Oh, awesome. I don't know if you heard her. She just screamed in the microphone. <laughs> oh, bless. Uh, Josie also wanted to comment that her favorite bit of trivia was that the punk on the bus is actually Leonard Nimoy's assistant, and he had to beg Nimoy to give him the role, and then he gets to cameo as himself, as the punk, in Spider-Man Homecoming. Mm-hmm. Great. I, Good on I have, like, <laughs> fantasize about doing that on public transit. <laughs> <laughs> All I could think about was how rude that is. <laughs> and and now it's it feels even more common than it used to be. Everyone has some sort of audio device in their pockets these yeah. days. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people play stuff out loud on them. <laughs> okay, Mandy, I assume we're going to continue for Star Trek 5? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and so not to put you on the spot again, is there any, any favorites of yours you'd recommend us to check out in the future? Oh my, um, more recent stuff. I love Back to the Future. I love Ghostbusters. I don't know 
if you have delved deeply into either. Um, but I, I, it's a, an often a battle between my absolute favorite movies is oh, between really? Back to the Future and Ghostbusters. Uh, some older stuff. I really love anything Catherine Hepburn did. Okay. Mm. Suddenly last summer is creepy and weird, but my, <laughs> okay. it's, it's really creepy and weird. Uh, but my, my absolute favorite of hers is probably bringing up baby. Uh, stuff from that era. Movie musicals, singing in the rain. Some great stuff. Yeah. Matthew watched that for the first time last year. I did. I did. I enjoyed it except for the romance. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I did love, I was talking Catherine Hepburn, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was one of the best things I saw last year. That was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring Out Baby, that's a good shout. Mm. Okay, well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can also send us an email at podcast at eloquentgushing.com. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Matthew Vose. So thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful having you all on. And this was so much fun. It, it was great to uh, get to laugh over such a fun film. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And where can people find you and your work? Sure. If you want to look for me on Twitter specifically, I'm at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And uh, you can hear me on Women at Warp, either at womenatwarp.com or uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are at Women at Warp. Okay, can I ask the background for your Twitter handle? Oh, yes. It's actually, it's uh, from many years ago. It's from high school uh, Mm. in choir. Depending on what voice parts were needed, I sang soprano, alto, or tenor. Okay. It got squished together into Speltor. Nice. Okay. And just stuck around for 20 years. That's fantastic. (laughs) For a hundred something episodes, I've been trying to work it out. (laughs) (laughs) Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to check out our homepage, eloquentgushing.com, to find all those other shows. We'll be back next week with another episode where we'll talk about French Kiss with Lonnie Diane Rich from Chipperish Media. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And are you sure it isn't time for a colourful metaphor? Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing. <laughs>